and I gingerly navigated my way down the staircase. It creaked, and it was steep and had a feel of danger. The musty smell of the basement was all at once familiar, but still unique to its location. The walls, they were lined with shelving, with the literal fruits of my grandparents' labor. Canned tomatoes and peaches, my favorite green beans, they all had a place and were neatly arranged and chosen with intention. My grandfather was raised in a generation who had incredible economic growth, but they'd also come of age during the Great Depression. Tools and home were given great stewardship. He was the king of his castle, a kind and gentle king. He had a hobby that, improved, that proved incredibly fascinating to me as a young girl. I was a young girl who um, yearned more for a microscope and tinker toys than Barbie dolls. He had model trains. And Grandpa Joe used to work for the railroad, and he was a consummate train hobbyist. He had model trains in that basement that made negotiating those dangerous stairs well worth the effort. Large pieces of plywood were laid out on what must have been sawhorses, and they were the base to a tiny, well-ordered, and what seemed like a magical world of his own creation. And I was allowed to watch the model trains in his miniature magical world, but I wasn't allowed to touch them. I understood that my childish fingers might introduce an element of chaos into that carefully ordered world. One day, Grandpa was letting me watch while he ran the trains, and I was enraptured with the clickety-clack of the train, and I delighted in its whistle as it wound around the far corner from where we were perched. Grandma called to us in the backyard garden, and we left the basement to see what she had needed. When we returned, the train had flipped over. It was no longer clipping along its track. Its grand whistle was only a ghost of itself. Without a word, Grandpa picked up the engine, righted it, and it continued on its endless loop. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack. Deep inside my young chest, I felt a deep and profound sadness. This perfect magical world wasn't perfect when Grandpa took his eyes off of it. It had a hiccup that had revealed itself and left on its own. That hiccup would wreck everything. I didn't know it at the time, but in that moment, I began to form a belief about my world and the way it was ordered. I began to believe that God was absent in the hiccups. And at that tender age, I began unknowingly to venture into theology. If we understand theology, to be the study about the nature of God. I began to form beliefs about God and what kind of God I was learning about on Sunday mornings. At a very young age, I began to get intimately familiar with the theology of a trained hobbyist God. A God who set the world in motion and then exited stage left, stage right, really didn't matter. He had taken his eyes off creation and it had run off the tracks. As a child and teenager, I immersed myself in the study of this far-off God, not unlike how I studied the world around me. I would wonder at things in the world and would create slides for the microscope that I'd been given for Christmas one year. I would affix the specimen to a glass slide, then use a special glue to affix a cover, ensuring that it would stay put for my examination. 
In my head and my heart, I tried to make God into one of my microscope specimens. I read about God. I wrote about God. I studied God. And sometimes I even talked to God, even though deep down it felt pretty silly doing it. I read about a God in Leviticus who seemed to care about not mixing fibers in my clothing and what sort of food I would eat. I read about a God who got so fed up with the hiccups that he flooded the world in some great cosmic do-over. It was a God that didn't really seem to have much to offer me or the world in which he lovingly created but appeared to have abandoned. Who could blame him? Our childish fingers have made a mess of a very beautiful creation. In the passage of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, Moses was with the Israelites on the plains of Moab. This is when he gave a series of speeches to them. The Israelites were on the edge of the land that they had been promised and ready to enter it, and Moses had a little family meeting. When I was in high school debate, we had a pro- if we had a problem in our class and in our team, my debate coach would tell us that we needed to circle the wagons and talk out whatever the problem was had been developing. Moses, in effect, told the Israelites that what they needed to do was circle their wagons and listen up. I didn't know how much I didn't know much about the book of Deuteronomy before this last spring. I mean, I knew it's where we find the Shema. It's the Jewish creed faith, creed, the faith creed for the Jewish faith. Because for a past season of my life, I thought it made more sense to be Jewish. And uh, Pastor Shane patiently top, talked me off of that conversion ledge. I didn't know that Deuteronomy was like Moses' pep talk and a record of this last opportunity to shape a precious people before his death, before they entered the promised land. I took a class in Deuteronomy this last spring, not because I had any great love for the book of Deuteronomy, but so I could graduate with Pastor Megan. And by the time our professor had us read the entire book of Deuteronomy for the fifth time, while doing in-depth, detailed work with a massive set of highlighters, I was getting to feel comfortable, and not with the book of Deuteronomy, but maybe dropping the class and cheering Megan from the pews. (laughs) It was incredibly tedious reading. But as the professor began to go through the book and unravel it all, he began to tell its story and explain its purpose, and I became intrigued again. Deuteronomy is a book about a people who need a reminding about their identity and purpose, and it's a series of speeches calling them to live a life differently than the world around them. Moses is reminding them in chapter 30 that they follow a God who is near to them. Moses was attempting to shape their imaginations about their identity and about their God. Their imaginations were to be shaped radically different than the hostile culture around them. Paul alludes to the same scripture in his letter to the Romans, relating righteousness back to the person of Christ. The God we serve and love is not absent in a way, but he is very, very near to us, even now. What I came to think about God was not the truth about God. We have been told lots of things about God, and some of them are true, and some of them are not. We have been told that God is a jealous God. We've been told Some of us that God is dead. We have been told that God is alive. We have been told that God is near to us. We've been told that God hates sin. And there are some people who even believe that God hates very certain sinners. Not everything we've been told about God is true. And so begins the messy work of discarding those untrue things that we've been told about God or have imagined about him and replacing them with the truth. 
What we believe or imagine about God influences how we live for him. If we believe that God is a creator, but also an unmovable master of the switches, then we might live as if our choices have no consequence. If, however, we live as if God is present and working out the hiccups, then we might indeed partner with him. I happen to imagine now that God is present and actively working out our hiccups, and he's invited each of us into that active work also. To speak of God is to speak of hope. St. Augustine writes that hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the same way. And God is hope personified. He was angry and sad at the distance between his beloved creation and himself, and he exercised courage at the cross that Good Friday, that Saturday between Good Friday and Easter morning, there was a deep magic that was worked on our behalf. It's a deep magic that goes back before the dawn of time. J.R. Tolkien writes in his collection of essays on fairy stories, fairy stories are not stories about fairies, but are stories about humans and fairy, the realm of state in which fairies have their being. Fairy stories are often misunderstood to be written for children and about things that are imaginary or impossible. But I believe that every Christian is living inside the grandest fairy story of all. If we pause to consider that maybe the kingdom of God is already here, and that earth is in fact our own realm or state of fairy. It's where when the world is turned upside down by a God who inhabits the world and continues to prowl through creation, still delighting in us, it's where fantastical things can happen. Here in fairy, the mourners are comforted. Here in fairy, the meek and not the proud inherit the earth. Here in fairy, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Here in fairy, the merciful are shown mercy. Here in fairy, the pure in heart get to see God. Here in fairy, peacemakers are the children of God. And here in fairy, those people who are persecuted for righteousness will see the kingdom of God. All of these grand promises are spoken into our present fairy reality not some fanciful tomorrow, only to be realized when Jesus returns. And what good news that is. Some might even take that as gospel. One of my favorite stories of what God looks like is C.S. Lewis's Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's truly one of my very favorite fairy stories. And so listen to me, if you will, to a fairy story. As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out onto the open hilltop the thin clouds were passing across the sky, but still they could see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bounds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass, kissed his cold face, and stroked his beautiful fur. What was left of it? They cried till they could cry no more. Then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again. And again they were silent. At last Lucy said, I can't bear to look at that horrible muzzle. Wonder if we could take it off. So they tried, and after a lot of working at it, for their fingers were cold and it was now the darkest part of the night, they succeeded. When they saw his face without it, they burst out crying again and kissed it and fondled it 
wiped away the blood and the foam as well as they could. And it was all more lonely and hopeless and horrid than they could ever imagine or know how to describe. Wonder if we could untie him as well, said Susan presently. But the enemies, out of pure spitefulness, had drawn the cords so tight that the girls could make nothing of the knots. I hope no one who hears this story has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were on that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes an end in a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. And at any rate, that's how it felt for these two. Hours and hours seemed to go by in this dead calm. They hardly noticed that they were getting colder and colder. But at last, Lucy noticed two other things. One was that the sky on the east side of the hill was a little less dark than it had been an hour ago. The other was some tiny movement going on in the grass at her feet. At first, she took no interest in this. What did it matter? Nothing mattered. Now, I mean, but at least she saw that whatever it was had, become, had begun to move up the upright stone of the stone table. Now, whatever they were moving about on Aslan's body, she peered closer. They were little gray things. Ugh, said Susan from the other side of the table. How beastly. There are horrid little mice crawling all over. Go away, you little beasts. And she raised her hand to frighten them away. Wait, said Lucy, who'd been looking at them more closely still. Can't you see what they're doing? Both girls bent down and stared. I do believe, said Susan, but how queer. They're nibbling away at the cords. That's what I thought, said Lucy. I think they're friendly mice. Poor little things, they don't realize he's dead. They think it'll do some good untying him. It was quite definitely lighter by now. Each of the girls noticed for the first time the white face of the other, and they could see the mice nibbling away, dozens and dozens, even hundreds of little field mice. And at last, one by one, all of the ropes were gnawed through. The sky in the east was whitish by now, and the stars were getting fainter. All except one very big one low down on the eastern horizon. They felt colder than they had been all night. And the mice, they crept away again. The girls cleared away the remains of the nod ropes, and Aslan looked more like himself without them. Every moment, his dead face looked nobler. As the light grew and they could see it better, it was quite definitely early morning now, not late night. I'm so cold, said Lucy. So am I, said Susan. Let's walk about a bit. They walked to the eastern edge of the hill and looked down. The one big star had almost disappeared. The country all looked dark and gray, but beyond at the very end of the world, the sea showed pale. The sky began to turn red. They walked to and fro more times than they could count between the dead Aslan and the eastern ridge trying to keep warm. And oh, how tired their legs felt. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? asked Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I, I feel afraid to turn round, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And they turned, pulling Susan around with her. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. 
All colors and shadows were changed. And for that moment, they didn't see the important thing. And then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Oh, oh, cried the girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried the both children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. I love the way Aslan is described. His giant velvet paws that silently pad back and forth as he paces through Narnia, the warm breath the children experience, his roar that leaves their ears ringing as he marches towards his death at the stone table, the great wet tears as he suffers the humiliation of his mane being shaved from his head. The scene of the stone table where Aslan meets a traitor's death and experiences his resurrection never fails to make me cry. Every Easter morning, I read the chapter, chapter 15, where the witch is ignorant of the deep magic from before time, an incantation that makes even death work itself backwards. And every Easter, I deeply feel the grief, the sorrow, the loneliness, the shame, and the coldness that the girls experience in the company of Aslan's dead body on the stone table. But I've been quick to read over the other characters in that story. People are very familiar with Aslan, Lucy, and Susan. But there's another cast of overlooked characters, the mice. The mice who arrive at the table and begin the tedious work of unbinding the dead Aslan. The girls are alarmed by the mice. Their first instinct is to protect Aslan from their gnawing until they look at the work they're attempting to accomplish. The mice are loosing the ties that bind the great Aslan. And maybe, brother and sister, Christians are sometimes the guilty parties that have tied up Aslan, mocked him, deluding themselves that he is made tame in their own demands and likeness. And perhaps we are not just the sideline witnesses like Lucy and Susan. Perhaps we've been quick to bind up Aslan and make him safe. But C.S. Lewis is quick to remind us Aslan is good, but he is not safe. And perhaps we've been guilty of sacrificing Aslan on the stone table of our own safety. We have fashioned Aslan into our own image of what holiness does and does not look like, making our own legalistic ideas of holiness an idol to worship. Our idea of what holiness is falls short of what God's idea of holiness. Where we may understand holiness is a life where we don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with boys that do. God imagines holiness as something much greater, something that has less to do with a behavioral checklist and everything to do with our deeper internal motivations and the desires of our hearts. We have fashioned Aslan into our own idea and image of what we think the Bible makes him out to be, forgetting that we're subject to our own contexts and fallible interpretations, turning the Bible into an idol 
Instead of learning about what God, what Aslan, as he reveals himself in the Bible, we put Aslan in our own biblical cage. We have fashioned Aslan to fit into our own nationalistic ideals as a chosen and set-apart people under God, creating a civil religion that threatens to become idolatrous. And so in the word of Dorothy Sayers, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, recommending him as a pale household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Instead of Aslan, who cannot be contained by a most powerful witch, her minions, or even death itself, we have created ourselves instead a most perfect lap cat. The truth is, our imaginations, they never required the help of a witch or ogres or whatever or whoever we imagined the monsters to be. Friends, good news, Aslan is not dead. The ties that bound him have been loosed, and he is even more noble and grand and free than Susie and Lucy, Susan and Lucy could even imagine. And our own imaginations matter. What we imagine about God very much influences how we move in the world. So if we imagine a God who is in need of our defense, then we are the enemies that have tied up his paws. And if we imagine a God who hates certain sinners, then we are the enemies who have again tightened the binds around his paws. And if we imagine a God who no longer speaks in the world, then we are the enemies who have bound his muzzle. But God is not bound. Instead of being a part of a crowd of enemies that unwittingly binds up Aslan, let us instead posture ourselves as the mice, slowly undoing the fetters that bind Aslan. And let us doggedly gnaw and chew away the fetters that bind our collective imaginations. So back, back in my grandpa's basement, my imagination about God began to form in such a way that it became easy to begin to feel unmoved by him. My imagination became a self-fulfilling prophecy. God had left the room of my life, and every bad thing that happened to me only solidified that belief. Crohn's disease, God's left the building. Colon down the crapper, God left the building. Planes that fly into buildings on 9-11, God left our building. $750,000 hospital bill, God has left the building. Divorce, God left the building. Financial ruin, God left the building. Kidneys quit, God has left the building. But really, God never left the building. My imagination failed me, God did not fail me. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans wrote, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. To know the will of God, we have to have our imagination shaped in a different way. And when our imaginations have to be shaped in a different way than the world around us, our minds will require renewing. The world looks at Crohn's disease financial ruin, and divorce, and so that God has no power and God is dead. God is absent. God is the stuff of impossible and silly fairy stories. A Christian, however, has their imagination shaped differently 
and sees the continual renewal and redemption being written into creation all around them. They are living out the greatest fairy story ever told. I testify to you that I've witnessed this powerfully in my own life. And perhaps the biggest miracle is not that I stand before you free of Crohn's disease or with the world's greatest kidneys, because they very much still need replacing. But the biggest miracle is that my head and heart are not bitter. I have hope. I know that God's imagination is continually creating all things new, not at some fixed point in the past at the stone table or the tomb in Gethsemane, not in some far-off fixed point in an eschatological future, but right here, right now where we are. My prayer remains that my imagination is always captured and patterned after God's. May I take the posture of the mice and free Aslan to do his work of wonderful redeeming and restorative imagination in all of creation and in all of me. Thank you. Caleb, would you come up? <clears throat> 